My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here, and I, I'm still not over the fact that I can say that now. That's really cool. Um, if you've been here before, you know that uh, we do something a little bit different, and that is that at, at the end of the sermon, before I move into communion, we'll have a Q&A. You'll see that number, or the, the, the number you can text that question in that you have about the sermon, the passage, or the topic. It'll be on the bottom right hand of the screen as soon as we get to the first main point in the slide. And um, I, I just love that we, we do that because it's super helpful for me. It helps me know how I'm being heard and, and how you all are interacting with the text and, and the sermon, and, and it's awesome. And um, I'm also just, I'm going to try to forgive you for only asking about the raisin cakes last week. <laughs> because JP was here for the last time, and he's preaching on Hosea 3, and all you ask is, like, why are cinnamon rolls bad? Okay, it's, it's fine. It's fine. I'll get over it. It's, it's great. Um, I'm going to actually interpret that as, as, as having great affection for him, uh, which is probably accurate, actually. Um, Psalm 110 that El just read is, is, is very interesting. Um, if, if it's familiar to you at all, either the themes or the exact language, this probably because it's after Jesus' death and resurrection, right? And part of it is because, right, the, the New Testament hadn't been written then. Right? It hadn't been written. All they had in terms of God's word were these messianic prophecies, these, these promises of God telling God's people that rescue is still coming. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm, so it is, it is describing and foretelling that very promise. And the picture that's painted in Psalm 110 is this picture of a paradoxical Messiah. So let me, let me explain what I mean by that, okay? By Messiah, I mean the, the word Messiah means anointed, right? It means that this is God's chosen one, the one whom he is sending to bring Israel back to him, whether that is a, a geographic bringing, as in the return of the exiles, uh, whether that is a spiritual bringing in terms of our hearts and affections toward God. But this is important because throughout the entire Old Testament, all of Scripture before Jesus comes, is, has this kind of, I, I like the phrase, a holy discontent. It's a holy discontent that's baked into every Old Testament promise of rescue because even as God is rescuing his people from whatever circumstances they've gotten themselves into, whether it's their own choosing or otherwise, every rescue actually points to a need for an even greater rescue, for a more lasting rescue, for a more satisfying rescue. What's interesting about this is that, as if you were here for our, our first sermon in the series, you know that book five of the Psalms, because the Psalms is, are divided up into five books or five sections, book five is arranged and ordered and themed around specifically exiles who are returning to the promised land, who are rebuilding the temple, whom, whom God has rescued. And so it's kind of weird, Right? that as they're coming back and they're celebrating and they're being, they're being returned to the promised land and, and, and right relationship with God, that in the midst of that, it's like, it's like the psalmist is saying, this is great, enjoy it, celebrate, but also this isn't your ultimate hope, that this, all, this too will not last. We actually need an even greater rescue and a more ultimate transcendent hope. Now, that said, so that's the messianic part. The paradox part is that this psalm is weird and you don't even know it, okay? 
What I mean by that is, is in this psalm, if you were part of the original audience, the returning exiles, this would be a very strange, contradictory psalm within itself. But in part because we have been so shaped by the New Testament, because we know how this is actually pointing to Jesus, we, we kind of take it for granted. We don't, it doesn't shock us like it would have when it was first written. And so I really want to focus on how Psalm 110 has the, this, the, these inherent paradoxes that we miss because of our familiarity with it. And so the first paradox is this, that in this same person, this Messiah that David is, is writing about poetically in Psalm 110 is human and divine at the same time. Human and divine. Like, okay, yeah, we know Jesus checks that buck. Hold your horses. Slow down. Pump the brakes, okay? Try to go enter into the shoes of someone who didn't know that answer already. Because in Matthew 22 and Mark 12, when Jesus is quoting this psalm, the circumstances are fascinating, okay? This is at the point in Jesus' ministry where the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they are they're realizing that this guy is going to be a problem, right? That he's kind of upending the status quo, and he's not playing by the rules. He's not cooperating with the authorities. And so they hold this basically an ancient Near Eastern press conference, right? They, they gather everybody together, and they put Jesus on the spot and try to trap him in a few very pointed questions. They try, you know, questions that try to trap him politically. They ask him, and, and my, like, this is, oh, man, it's just, it's, when, when you look at how brilliant Jesus is once we, you get past your familiarity, it's stunning how remarkable his answers are. Like when, he asks, when he's asked, should we pay taxes to Caesar, he says, you know, who, give me a coin. Okay, here's a coin. Now he's got a visual aid. First of all, that's just best practice, right? <laughs> so he takes a coin. He says, whose image is on this coin? And they say, well, Caesar's. He says, okay, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's knowing that his audience would have understood that as human beings, they bear the image of God. So he's like, fine, pay taxes to Caesar, but give yourself to God. I mean, this is brilliant, right? They try to trap him theologically and asking questions about the resurrection because that was a live dispute between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, okay? But Jesus eventually, he, he, he humors them for a little while, but then he turns the table and he asks about Psalm 110, verse 1. And he quotes it. He says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So what's going on here, it says the Lord, this is, this is Yahweh, this is God, saying to David's Lord, to my Lord, who the original audience would have understood as descendants of David, a descendant of David, sit at my right hand. So this is God speaking. That's why the quotes are there. The Lord says to David's Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus quotes this psalm because Psalm 110 would have been like, everybody would have been familiar with the messianic prophecies and the passages. They would have been way more familiar with the Old Testament than we are with the New Testament. But they were especially familiar with the messianic prophecies because that was where they were sinking their hope into. Because as a conquered people under the oppression and rule of the Roman Empire, they were particularly focused and hoping for a royal descendant of David to rescue them and to bring political liberation. That's kind of their felt need, so to speak. 
And so when Jesus quotes it, he asks them, so if this is talking about a son of David, a descendant of David, why is David calling him my Lord? Because I don't know if you, you know, I mean, if you have kids, you know this, like, um, you don't call your kids my Lord, right? Okay. Even if they, I mean, they may think that they're the Messiah sometimes. That's just kind of weird. The parents, the previous generations, they're the ones with the greater authority and ruling responsibility. And so, so goes parenting, so goes King David and his descendants. We know that David's not referring to Yahweh because that's who is speaking to this person, right? And so, who is it, right? It's complicated even further when, when, it's a, when it says, David records God saying, sit at my right hand. Because to sit at the right hand of God actually means to sit with equal power and authority as God. And I just, I'm just going to save you some time. If you look through the Old Testament, you will not find a single time that happens outside of the Messiah where God invites another person, another human, to sit at his right hand, okay? That is weird. It's a paradox. When Jesus asked that question, the Pharisees are at least smart enough to realize, oh, this is a trap too. And they are afraid to ask more questions because Jesus, what he's doing in this moment is he's actually making an implicit claim of divinity, and the Pharisees knew that to actually argue with Jesus in his claim on divinity would be to erode and to say Scripture isn't saying what it says. I mean, that's just that's baller. I don't care who you are. Okay? The only way to reconcile Psalm 110 and what is being said in the first verse, just the first verse, is if this Messiah is the paradox of being fully human and fully divine. There's just no other way this can actually be true otherwise. You know, we want to put ourselves in the place of, of Jesus or the hero of the story because that's kind of how we're trained. Between social media and just the rank individualism of our culture, we, we want to be the author and the, the protagonist of our own story. But the reality is that we're actually way more like the Pharisees here. The reality is, is that we're not Jesus, um, you know, uh, delivering the clap back. We're actually the Pharisees who walked into the trap. And so Jesus confronts us with Psalm 110 every bit as much as he confronted the Pharisees. Because try as we might, we too want to put Jesus in a box, right? Let me, let me, let me illustrate this way. Let me ask the question and, and may ask yourself this question, how do you reduce the Messiah to less than divine in the ways that the Pharisees refuse to consider him as more than human? How do you reduce Jesus' divinity to make him more comfortable, to be able to put him in a box? Because let's be, let's be real, like everybody loves the idea of Jesus. Everybody loves the human, like, I mean, he, he doesn't like all the people you don't like. He loves all, he has compassion for all the same people that you have compassion for. He would respond in the exact same way, um, you know, uh, overturning the tables of the grifters and the establishment and the temple. He's so humble and relatable, just like us. I 
I know you can hear the sarcasm in my tone. The point I'm trying to make is that that is only possible to the degree that we have made Jesus a mascot of our own agenda and not allowed his agenda to become ours. Uh, one of my favorite passages in Scripture isn't just a messianic kind of prophecy. It's actually what's called a Christophany, which means it's a pre-incarnate, in other words, pre-Jesus' birth, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus showing up early on in the story and doing some equally amazing things. Um, and that passage is in Joshua chapter 5. Uh, Israel, at this point in its history, has, is moving into the promised land from the wilderness after being rescued from Egypt and all of that in Exodus. And they realize that the only way that they can get into the promised land is by getting past this fortified city named Jericho. And so Joshua is the commander uh, and the, the, the leader that succeeded Moses, and it picks up here in Joshua chapter 5. I love this so much. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Pause there. Everybody has asked God this question. Okay. Joshua is not the first, and he definitely is not the last. Okay. Jesus' response is perfect. I agree with him, in other words. He says, no. He doesn't, he says, he's, he's saying, your categories are flawed. Your presumptions are extremely off and not based in reality. You don't understand who I am. He says, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. In other words, you're on my side. I'm not on yours. He says, now I have come. And when it says, now I have come there, the language there is fascinating. It's actually, um, it's a der derivative or a variation of Yahweh, which in the Hebrews, four letters, it means I am. In other words, I am who I am. I am not Anything in reference to anything you know because I am the Alpha and the Omega. I was the first thing with that which everything is a reference to me. So when he says, now I have come, it's a, it's a derivation of that same to be verb. For those of you who are grammar nerds, you're like, yes. I have checked your box this morning, okay? It says, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him. And said, what does my Lord say to his servant? Pause there again. Because every single time in all of Scripture that someone bows or falls in worship to someone who is not God, that person says, whoa, 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 hold up. Pause. <laughs> I'm not him. I might look great because I'm an angel or somebody else or whatever, but like, this is still a far cry. Don't worship me. Worship God. Not only does this person not say don't worship me. It says, the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The last time that had been said was in the burning bush when Moses met Yahweh for the first time. This is setting up Joshua and saying that he is the Moses' successor and that God is going to be as faithful to him as he was to Moses in delivering them from the Egyptians. That this is, I, I want to just preach a whole sermon on this now. Um, 
if you've been here longer than five minutes, you know and have heard me talk about how terrible of an idea it is to make Jesus our political mascot. So I'm going to skip that because that's the obvious application. What I want to ask is, have you made him your personal mascot? Not your political mascot. Let me break it down this way. Um, How many of you have heard the term spiritual but not religious? Right? This is one of the few things that kind of bubbles up from the bottom of society. That It's a term that, that people just started using, and because they started using it, demographers were like, hey, you know what, that's actually a really good category. We're going to use that category since people are using it already anyway, which is really smart. Um, but to say that you are spiritual but not religious is, is to kind of say, like, I take seriously the transcendent spiritual things in life. I believe that there is a higher power or there is something that outside of the observable realm. But you know what, I'm just not crazy about it. You know, like, I'm not going to go door to door and tell everybody about it. It's it's more implicit than explicit. It's, you know, the problem with that is the angel, the the commander of the Lord's armies have about as, are going to entertain that about as much as he entertained Joshua's question of, are you for or against us? Because what's being asked and what's, what operates in the assumptions of spiritual but not religious, is this idea that I can have Jesus and eat him too. Okay? What I mean by that is like I can have Jesus as kind of like a theme or a, a mascot. I can live Christianly, but really it's going to be this, this thing that is a competing interest that's in parallel with all the other things like my job and my physical health and my self-care and my romantic relationships and my family and my hobbies and like I'm also spiritual but not religious, Right? Because if you were, you would orient all of those things around Jesus instead of just incorporating him beside them. Here's the problem with this. Trying to sate our spiritual hunger on that is kind of like trying to sate our, our, our physical hunger on those snack packs that Southwest Airlines gives out. You laugh because you know. Also, side, side rant, they used to have a lot more than just pretzels in them. Thank you. Okay? You know why they give those to you? Well, one, they give them to you on short flights because it's too short. It just takes too much money to, 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 to make something and give out something different. But they give them to you on the longer flights because pretzels are this miserable com- combination of salt and dust. You... Look, even if you like pretzels, you can't argue with me on this, okay? Salt and dust. The dust has just been like in this like suspended animation uh, where it's been put together just long enough to enter into your mouth, and then it just exhausts all moisture whatsoever. They do this because it makes you thirstier. It makes you hungrier. On the long flights, they're going to give you two packs, right? Like, how many of you have ever gotten to like the little brownie crisps? And, and even remotely thought about opening the snack packs. No, because you're smart. And they taste better. And it doesn't make you hungrier. It actually does it. Spiritual but not religious is pretzels. Sorry. My point is this. Is Jesus divine or not? If he's not, we should close our doors and go home. Because I would love to sleep in. If he's human and not divine, we should not listen to him. 
that would be it because he's making claims about how we should order our lives and the way that we should live that is more humanizing. That is insane because he's also saying he's God. And if you don't believe that, that means he's insane. But if he's, if he's divine, then it would actually be insane to not listen to him. It would be insane to not order our lives around what he says. It would be to be spiritual but not religious and ever expect different results. Okay, so I already see, you guys are killing me. I'm already seeing texted questions come in about, what about yogurt-covered pretzels? <laughs> you guys know the saying, you can, put, you can put lipstick on a pig, right? Okay, question answered. Second paradox, <laughs> king and priest. This Messiah is both a king and priest. Now, that doesn't sound... We kind of have a, even, even in, a post, in a New Testament era, we have a, an appreciation for like, yeah, human and divine, that's a paradox, but why is king and priest? Like, that's not that. I mean, they're both kind of like, you know, different kinds of authority or leaders and offices, right? But it's actually almost as, it's almost as shocking to the Old Testament audience as well, right? Because um, I think Tim Keller said this, but I quote him so much that I forget if it's him or just anybody else. Um, but he says, kings bring God to people, and priests bring people to God. Kings bring God to people in their exercise and stewardship, a responsible exercise and stewardship of authority and judgment that keeps the society that they lead together and flourishing. Priests bring people to God by atoning for their sins, by getting the barriers out of the way that are keeping them from God and extending God's mercy as a means of invitation. In the Old Testament, there was a non-negotiable, never-transgressed firewall between these two offices, right? You would never have a... There was a firewall between the king's throne and the priest's temple. The king never entered the Holy of Holies, and it didn't even get into the, the chamber that's, that's closest to that, that's right outside of it. In fact, when David, who wrote this psalm, so he knows more than anybody else, right? When David was, had, had resumed and taken the throne from, from King Saul and was king, he was starting to make plans to build the temple for the Ark of the Covenant because it was still in the tent of meeting that they had carried through the wilderness and from, from Egypt. Um, they hadn't carried it from Egypt, they carried it from Sinai. That was misspeaking. Um, and God said, hey, good intentions, pump the brakes. There's actually too much blood on your hands. You have been too much of a king to be the one to build a temple that will house and contain my presence. There is too much blood on your hands that has been exercised in merely human justice and not my perfect justice. You can't combine these two. Your son Solomon will build the temple. Right? Why the firewall? Why, why, why this divide? Why is this not okay? Was well, because apart from Jesus, justice and mercy is a zero-sum game. One of my favorite, let me, let me illustrate this. One of my favorite uh, simple definitions of, of forgiveness is to willingly absor uh, absorb the justice another rightly deserves. To give forgiveness is actually to receive injustice and to accept it and to be okay with it in love for that other person. That's what Jesus did on the cross. 
There is a, so, but for God to be able to do both is, it just doesn't make sense. How do you do that? Because you can't forgive and also execute justice. It would be unjust, wouldn't it? We, we kind of know what this is like, right? We, conceptually or culturally, we understand or we think we un, that those two things are combinable until the rubber hits the road. And by that, I mean somebody cut you off, right? We understand that justice and mercy can coexist until somebody cuts us off and then we're like, no, mercy would be wrong here, especially if they're going 10 miles an hour under the speed limit. Come on, people have good places to go. <sighs> Don't mean to project. But when we're the ones that do it, we are just aghast when somebody isn't able to extend the mercy we believe that they should. In purely human terms, we don't know how to combine the two. In Exodus uh, 33, when Israel was still at Mount Sinai, at one point, Moses goes up to the mountain, and he's with God, and you know, this, is, this is when he's receiving the Ten Commandments. He says, God, let me see your glory. It's an interesting request on its own. But like of all the things that you would ask God, like, why let me see your glory? God's response to him, though, is you can't handle it, actually. You would vaporize in an instant because your, your human finite being cannot handle a full view of who I am in everything. That is why we need the sacrificial system. That's a different sermon, though. Um, but he says, here's, here's what I'm going to do. He says, Moses, I'm gonna, I want you to go into this cleft rock, and you, you're going to hide. And I want you to turn away, close your eyes, like you're playing hide and seek, and I'm going to put my hand over the opening of that cleft rock, and you're going to hear me pass by. And as I pass by, I'm going to proclaim my name to you. I'm going to proclaim my name, who I am to you. And as I pass by, once I have, I'll remove my hand and you can look at my back as I'm walking away. And that won't destroy you. Okay. So in Exodus 34, they do this. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed his name. I added that in there because that's the context. That's what he said he promised to proclaim. He says, this is... This is God speaking. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, priestly, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. In other words, like this is God's priestly character and nature as much as can be described in merely human terms. This is who I am. But who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation because it's not just individualistic like we Westerners would like to believe. It's also systemic and familial. In other words, God is going to be a judging king also. Healing priest, judging king, both. If God's glory didn't blow Moses' mind, that probably did. Because that's who he is. That is his glory. His glory is the intersection of those two things. It is a paradox. It doesn't feel like it can be combined, right? How can you be just and merciful? How can you be both judge and forgiving? How can you do both of those things? Forgiving iniquity, but also visiting the crimes of fathers generations long. To the degree that that is not shocking or paradoxical to you, is the degree that you have been shaped by a Christian culture. 
By that, I mean, yes, maybe you grew up in church, but even outside of our church, our culture has been so shaped by that that it is appalling to us, this idea that that, that could be a paradox because of God, he's God. He can do that, of course. Why not? That's only something a culture could fathom, never mind be formed as a consensus, a shared value, something that we consider as duh, that's only possible with Jesus reconciling on the cross. Um, the, the, the fancy term for this is, by the way, it's called substitutionary atonement. And I love how Tim Keller defines this. I know for sure is from him. He says, sin is putting ourselves where only God deserves to be, but the gospel or the cross is God putting himself where only we deserve to be. That is how these things are reconciled. Because on the cross, God brings justice to all of our sin and yet also brings mercy to all of our need. All of God's goodness isn't just shown to us as he's passing by. It is open to us as he dies for us. That's mind-blowing, guys. We don't do that with each other. No human does that. No God has to. And yet that's what Jesus loves to do. It says, we read this as our assurance for, of, of grace this morning from Colossians 1. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God, all the goodness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, right? That is, that is priestly language whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by blood of his cross. That is judgment language. That's justice. That's God's kingliness. So Jesus then is the fullness of God in all of God's goodness, both as a kingly mediator and priestly judge. Man, guys, if you see this, if you see that all the goodness of God isn't just open to you, it is yours it will change you. It will change you. God's glory will radiate from your life every bit as it radiated from Moses' face. Because when it says that he came down from Mount Sinai, his face was glowing even though it was veiled. It can't help but change you. You can't unsee it and you can't not share it. That's the last paradox, actually. Maybe the greatest paradox of it all is, is how it changes us. You can't unsee God's glory once you've seen it, and you can't not share God's goodness once you've tasted it. Now, to explain that, I got to kind of like dig into something here in Psalm 10 that you probably heard Elle read or you read on the screen. You're like, oh, that was intense. Um, so let me set this up because it says in verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. In other words, that God's people will rise up as an army for the king and follow him into battle. And then in verses 5 and 6, it says that the Lord is at your right hand, speaking to the Messiah. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute... Shatter, by the way, is like... Uh, it is such an extreme like explosion, it's, it's, there are no pieces that can be found, much like pretzels. 
He will shatter kings, turn them to dust on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses, filling them with bodies over the wide earth. Okay? By the way, then it says in verse 7, this is, this is fascinating, this is probably like, what? He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Cool. That's a weird way to end, like global Armageddon. He will drink by the brook, by the way, I got thirsty. That was a lot of hard work, right? Uh, I joke, but that's actually kind of what's going on here, which is fascinating. This is alluding to a story in the book of Judges that comes hundreds of years prior. Before, God, before Israel had a king, he had, Israel had judges, and God had those judges execute the judgment of a king, but without the king's vanity and narcissism, etc. And one of those judges was a guy named Samson. Samson, well, he was an interesting, uh, cranky kind of guy. He's, he's very strange. It's, it's fascinating. If you want to read it, go to Judges 13 through 16. It's, it's all in there. Um, at one point, in retribution for winning a battle against the Philistines. The Philistines um, murder his wife and father-in-law. And so Samson arranges, allows himself to be captured and delivered to the Philistines. And upon being in the middle of their camp, he uh, releases the bonds around him, grabs a, it says, a fresh donkey's jawbone, and then uses that and, and slaughters a thousand men with it. At the end of it, he says, God, have I just overcome this thou these thousand men only to die of thirst? And God says, okay, here's some water, okay? This is a very paraphrased retelling, okay? This is included in the psalm, and this is a reference there because what he's trying to say is, like, that's how total, that's how complete, that's how utterly clear this king's judgment is going to be. Put a pin in that for a second because here's where that, I get goosebumps just anticipating what I'm going to say. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 paraphrases Psalm 110. Let's, let's take a look at it. In verse um, 19-ish and through 22, 23, it says that Jesus in being raised from the dead was seated at his right hand, the right hand of God in the heavenly places. That's paraphrasing from verse 1. We read that a couple times. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, not just his head was raised, he was raised. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come forever as a priest in the order of Melchizedek, right? And he put all things under his feet, in other words, at his, his footstool, and then gave him as head over all things... You guys' translation say to the church too? To the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, that's not in Psalm 110, the church part. Here's why. Ed Clowney says that Paul's allusion to Psalm 110 turns filling the world with bodies into filling the world with Christ's body. It turns filling the world with bodies, our bodies, to filling the world with the body of Christ, the church. 
Jesus' glory and his goodness is so full and so complete and so, I have no word but other than awesome, actually awe-striking, that he doesn't just fulfill Psalm 110. He actually involves the single worst people to ever walk the earth as part of his plan. His redemption is so cosmic, so complete, so full, that he makes agents of shalom from among his enemies. And his love is so secure and so complete that we can actually go into the midst of our enemies and set up a table for a picnic because Jesus is on the throne. We can have a humble confidence that is, that is rooted and dependent on him instead of ourselves. We don't need to care about our safety or our security or anything because he has secured us in him. Paul riffs on this idea in, in 1 Corinthians when he, or 2 Corinthians when he says that God told him his power is made perfect in our weakness. Our undeservedness then magnifies God's goodness as it passes by our neighbors, not because we got our crap together, but because we don't. God's glory is passing by our neighbors. God's goodness is fulfilled and, and percolating throughout the world, and they can't unsee it. It's actually only ever when we mistake God's glory for our deservedness that we actually, that that goes awry. It is when we start to think that God was really smart for forgiving us, and that was a good idea to pick us for his kickball team. That's not a thing. The body of Christ fills the earth as stewards until he returns, that we would, that we would, that we would care for his name. Not just proclaim it, but that we would be living and ordering our lives around it such that the glory of God would be magnified and the good of our neighbors would be accomplished. It's almost like that's what our vision statement was written for. And I'll be honest, if you're asking, you the question, if you're asking yourself the question like, have you met us? Like, yes, I've met, I've met us. We've met us. It's a terrible idea unless God is human and divine and unless he is a king and a priest and unless his glory is something you can't unsee and his goodness is something you can't not share. This isn't just in Psalm 110. If you guys were here last week, you know that when we sent uh, JP and his, some of his launch team to plant Christ Prez in Inglewood, that we used the... Uh, the Great Commission uh, as our benediction. If you remember the Great Commission, you know that it starts with kingly language. Jesus says to his disciples, all authority is given to me. I am at the right hand of Yahweh I, because I am God, right? All authority is given to me and it ends, it, it is bookended with, and I am with you, how long? Always. Forever, to the end of the age. This is priestly language. 
this is something we were inoculated to. We just read and hear the Great Commission as, as a command. And yes, it is a command. It is a commission. It's absolutely the case. But it's not something we have to do so much as something we are invited to and get to do. See, we're inoculated to them because we've had this pendulum sh- uh, shift in the church where like, we don't want to shove Jesus down anybody else's throat. By the way, that's really good. You don't want to do that because you can't. It doesn't work that way. You taste and see that the Lord is good, not choke and struggle to breathe that he's good. That's not, that doesn't, it doesn't work, but you also don't have to. You see, that's actually spiritual but not religious language talking. That's, I don't want, I don't want to be too religious. It's, I want Jesus to be manageable and put him in a box because he's human but not divine. And when we start to believe that, it turns our love of neighbor into something maybe marginally better than passive neglect. Now, let me say one more thing on this because I think this is really important for us to really feel the weight of this. And, and to, to make my point, I'm actually not going to quote a, a you know, Tim Keller or a brilliant Christian theologian. I want to quote uh, an atheist named Penn Gillette, right? Penn and Penn Gillette is the half of the, the magical comedy duo of Penn and Teller, and I know I've used this illustration before, and it's still true. Uh, what, he has this YouTube video where one night after a, uh, a performance, he, there, there's always the, you know, the line of people who are looking for an autograph, and he said, at the end of the line was this guy who was standing there and was like, hey, you know, actually, I don't want an autograph. I just, I just really wanted to give you this. And it was one of those, you know, Gideon's little mini Bibles, the Psalms, Psalms and New Testament, which, by the way, it's not a Bible if it doesn't include all the Old Testament, too. That's a Presbyterian talking point I'll save for later. Um, um, but this video was him reflecting on that, and he said he, he was thanking him. He said, thank you. I actually really appreciate this. And he was thanking him because he says this. He says, if you believe that there's a heaven and hell and a people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them about it? Okay, I want... Hear me. I'm not saying this is a guilt trip. I'm saying that if it is that clear to someone who does not claim the love of Christ or believe he exists or or human, never mind divine, or a king and a priest, if these paradoxes don't bother him and he says, well, just on a really basic utilitarian level, how much do you have to hate somebody? We have way more than in a utilitarian argument for this. We have the beauty the motive of love, born of a love that adopts enemies and declares broken cisterns the most tre- God's most treasured possessions. We have something way more satisfying than should. We have the cross. We have a crucified Savior. We think that the, lo- the opposite of love is, is hate, and it's not. It's apathy. But the problem that we are swimming in is not that we don't love our neighbors enough. It's that we don't actually taste and see God's love for us enough. 
We haven't been rocked by the paradox of God's glory and the fullness of his goodness passing before us, never mind on display on a cross. We trade transformative beauty and the love of Jesus for the apathy of pretzels. This will be the last thing I say before we jump into the Q&A. I want you to hear that the, grace, the Great Commission is, is way more than a command. It is an invitation to become what Greg Thompson calls inviting guests. We're not, we're not, we're not inviting somebody to a feast that we haven't tasted already. We're also not tasting and sitting at a feast that we wouldn't want to share with anyone who hasn't. You can't actually have one or the other. But the feast of the king priest is powerful enough on its own that we don't need to guilt trip people, that we don't need to bootstrap our way to it. We can actually say, you know what, I really suck at loving my neighbor. I suck at caring about my neighbor instead of all the crap that's going around in my own head. Jesus, show me your glory. Would you show me your glory? Because on the cross, Jesus doesn't show us his back. He shows us his heart. And so if you are feeling guilty, like there are some sermons where I'm like, I kind of want you to sit in it. Don't, not this one. That's, this is not that sermon, okay? Move on from that right now because I want you to see the glory of God in his goodness demonstrated and given to you that he would love you so much that he would find you the most worthwhile thing that he has ever created and such that he would die for it, die for you. If you're not longing in this way, you're not loving to invite your neighbors, if you're not enthralled by the the humanity and the divinity of Jesus or the kingliness and priestliness of Christ, just sit there for a moment in his glory and ask him. You don't even have to say like, you don't even have to like kid God about this. You can say, you know, God, actually say this, like, Jesus, I don't get it. I don't see your glory. I don't see what this is all cracked up to be. Ah, would you show it to me? Because Moses didn't see it at first, either. He just saw a burning bush. Like, what's up with that? But God reveals himself to us, and he always answers that prayer. Okay? Savor that glory and that goodness, and if you hunger for it, ask for it, and as you do, you're not going to be able to unsee it or unshare it, or not share it. Okay, let's see what questions we have this morning. Some of us are team pretzel. Yeah, yeah, okay. Is there a connection between God telling Moses and Joshua to remove their sandals and Jesus washing the feet of the disciples? Huh. Interesting. I have no idea. I will have to get back to you on that. I've never even thought of that before. That's a great question. Thoughts on, yes, another yogurt-covered pretzel person. Okay. Um, Do we fear God's intense love because we don't and cannot understand it, so we humanize Jesus to try and wrap our minds around it instead of living in ignorance and trusting his love for us? That shoe sounds like it fits. No, I mean, like, let's be be real. That kind of love is scary. 
Like, I, okay, let me put this. I, I talked about this a, a little bit two weeks ago when I was talking about birthday parties and everything. Like, I, I, I really love affirmation, and I, I like I want affirmation, but I hate it when I get it. The compliments are, are terrible. If you see me squirm, just be like, please, God, don't do this. I don't know how to handle it. I don't know how to do it. It makes me uncomfortable because it's a really vulnerable thing to receive love. And if God loves that much more, and by the way, he sees all the stuff you don't, that's, that can be a scary, discomforting thing. And that's real. And awesome. Okay, next question. On its face, I get what you're saying, that if Jesus isn't divine, then we should all just go home but I'm increasingly not even sure that's true. Would you really give up this community and people? You hope for life and love that echoes into eternity? These rituals and practices, would you really just drop everything and decide to ignore the obvious need for spiritual and religious need in people's lives? I ask this not to cheapen the Christian faith, but to point out that I think there is hope. Hope that and faith can and should endure even the uncertainty of the details of Jesus' metaphysical status. Snap. To say what I said doesn't, I don't mean to imply that loving people, like there's no good in it or that it may not be worthwhile. I think that if we actually, the deficit in this question isn't that you don't understand or appreciate or fully get God's love, it's, I would humbly suggest to this person that you might not actually understand what's being asked of you when God calls you to love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you think that that, that degree of, of loving your neighbor is worth doing for a lie, I don't, I don't know. Yes, getting together, having connection. By the way, I can be really selfish and do that too. That's good, having connection, having community, absolutely. But when, when Jesus calls us to make disciples, to teach him everything that he taught the disciples and to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, like he's saying that to teach them to pick up our cross and follow him. And to pick up your cross and follow a lie is stupid. I, I, I just can't get around that. I want to validate and affirm, yes, loving people, good. Serving people, good. To the degree that Jesus asks for us, if he's a lie, heck no. I'm going to do it on my terms and my way. It's a lot more comfortable. Okay, last question. When we evangelize to our neighbors, is it primarily to show God's love, mercy, priesthood, or repentance and recognition of his kingship? <laughs> How do we show both in that context? Ooh, okay, well, you, you kind of know the answer since you asked how do we show both. That is the answer. You're right. We live it, right? We repent to our neighbors before they ask. That's demonstrating his kingship, his authority over our lives, but also his mercy and his grace for us that we feel like we can. Like, I've, I've apologized to neighbors I thought for sure were upset with me, and they're just like, dude, it's okay. You know, it's... it's it's, it's fine. Forget about it. I'm spiritual but not religious, right? But no, actually, I took it seriously. And our taking that even more seriously than our neighbors is, is actually, 
Guys, that's, that's where it's at. That's powerful. Nobody takes it that seriously in the world right now. Okay, we have a couple more questions. I'm going to try to get to them. I'll, I'll try to get back to you over text at the beginning of this week. Um, but thank you for the questions that were not about pretzels. Um, I mentioned a minute ago uh, a guy named by, by the name of Greg Thompson, and he's a, a pastor and a nonprofit entrepreneur. And I, I, the entire vision of the table is shaped by a talk he did um, where he made the claim that we live in a world that wants to reduce Jesus to either a, 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 a judge or a healer, right? Uh, and typically, when he, he gave this talk, it was, it was implying in a lot of ways that the, the, the cultural right typically errs on the side of judge and the cultural left you know, errs on the side of healer. And to that, Jesus says, no. But he doesn't say to us, after his death and resurrection, I am the commander of the Lord's armies. He says, I am the divine host. Because the function of my judging and the, the, the compassion of my healing are both combined together in this idea of a host where I am rec- my judgment is a function of reconciling my people to me and my love is the unavoidable transformation, transformation and healing that, has, that results with being in me. That's why when Jesus, in the last moments, he had all the disciples together on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he says, this bread is my body. It is broken for you to satisfy the justice that my royal Davidic line promises. But I will be broken for you. Likewise, he takes the wine, he pours it out, and he says, this wine is the blood of the new covenant it is given for the remission of sins. In other words, it is, it is the very, your very nature is changed as a result of my healing presence in and among my people. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you proclaim my death until I return. Jesus so identifies with us, his people, that his Death becomes his very name. The substitutionary atonement of the cross, the love and the glory that is hung there by our sin is the thing that he says, this is my self-definition. This is who I am to you. And he says, you do that until I return. That's glorious. If that is your hope, and again, as I was praying earlier, if, 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 if you're thinking to yourself, like, I don't actually believe that, but I want it, then maybe say a quick prayer and say, God, I, I'm hungry for this. Can you satisfy me? Can you help me taste and see that you are good? Can you bring me to your table and then come to, your, come to his table? As uh, El leads us in worship, we're going to um, circle around, and as soon as eight or ten of you come up at any point during the, the worship, um, we're going to take it like the family that God has made us out of his enemies, and we're going to, it's going to be beautiful. So let's pray. Jesus, all the fullness of your goodness and your glory is taste and seen in your supper. I pray, Lord, that you help us to rest in that, 
to put down our preconceived notions, to put down the things that are unsatisfying, whatever they are. And Lord, even if we can't, to ask you to take them from us as we take the bread and wine this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would nourish us, heal us, your people. We pray all this in your name. Amen.